0: This is Alan, and welcome to Dice Over Everything, the Miniatures Gaming Podcast. You might notice that there's a, a voice missing, uh, and that is my general co-host, Brandon. And the reason why he's not able to be here is because it's the summer, and um, he likes to go outside, whereas I, on the other hand, am a traditional miniatures gamer, and I eschew any of that kind of stuff. So, uh, with that said, I guess it's up to me to come up with an intro because that's what usually, uh, he does. So, I'm gonna say, I have been thinking a lot about, uh, how games are able to break out into the quote-unquote mainstream, uh and that's because i think if you've heard of our podcast before we might have mentioned that we are creating a game Brendan and i uh called blood of stars and it's getting pretty close to a uh beta kind of level and at this point we've realized we should have been spending a lot of time you know getting messages out talking to people outside of you know our direct uh kind of group and so we've kind of now belatedly started looking at other games and seeing how those kind of games uh, are able to sell people and kind of grow and so because of that i've been thinking about you know just a few games that's not true i've been thinking about a lot of different games and kind of analyzing them and kind of going to different uh forums and things like that and seeing what Uh, People who are getting into the hobby or looking for a new game kind of talk about and ask for. And oftentimes, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm looking at these three or so games. Uh, What do you guys think? And I love commenting on those because I just just love talking about miniature games. But also, even more than that, I love analyzing things and breaking things down and giving my opinion. And so when I look at these new kind of games... um, i try to talk about the different things that might hook someone into the game right of course there's the uh you know just the general quality of the 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 game and the ease of playing things like that and in general uh and then there's like you know, the other kind of shiny parts, right? Because of course, when you get into a new game, you want there to be kind of a, almost like a love affair where you're so excited to play. And those two things kind of mix, right? With So you get you get hooked from, I don't know, the visuals or something, and then you get dragged down into the game because once you're with that game, uh, there's often a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of depth and, and kind of, of Important things afterwards that keep you going and kind of get you over that hump because you know it's our, our game, our our hobby, the miniature gaming hobby has a lot more barriers to entry than a lot of other games. Uh, when you consider you have to assemble your miniatures and then paint them if you want it to look good, uh, and then you also often have to read a giant rule book. And even create all the terrain on top. There's just a huge hump that you have to go over, and you don't want the gain to be preventing you at all, if possible, uh, from getting over that hump. I think um, Ash Barker from Gorilla Miniature Games often talks about this uh, Christmas morning test, where a, a good game you can open it uh, as a present on Christmas morning, and you know by the evening you can you know have you have everything ready and you can start playing it, but that while that is i think it's a great uh general um test uh for most games I think it is just very very hard for miniature games to uh pass that test and it it's often you know like just assembling the miniatures is such a huge leap uh that you really don't want your games to um the actual, like, reading the rules and learning the game to be so hard that, you know, people can't get those those things on the table. So even though miniature games in general don't actually pass, you know, a literal one-day kind of test to get things playing up, the idea and the sentiment is still there, right? You want to have these games kind of quickly get up to to speed and uh, be playable. But then when I thought about it, there's a lot of Different things going into a lot of different games. And it's often, you know, a Christmas morning test is a really good one for a, a beginner product, right? Um, but oftentimes, our most popular games kind of don't really pass that kind of test. And there's a lot of different things that kind of hook people in. So even though for our game, we want Blood of Stars to be very simple uh, to play, I think it's still instructive to look at all these different things that end up hooking people into games and make sure that, you know, besides just you know you could say the ease of play and getting into the game, uh, we kind of hit those other beats as easy, as, as best as possible. And so uh, today, I just want to go through a, uh, basically three different games uh, and why I think they um, have done quite well in attracting an audience, or at least along uh, three different properties. So. Um, the three different properties I want to talk about is the first one is that quality of life Christmas morning kind of test, like how easy is it for you to play the actual game. Um, and then the other one I want to talk about when I when I mention these three games is uh, basically uh, whether the game has some sort of killer edge, something that makes it makes someone when when you're describing the uh, the game. Um, they get peaked. Their interest is peaked, and they're like, "Wow, that is kind of interesting, right?" It gives you a little bit uh, of an incentive to dive in further. Uh, and I guess I kind of mentioned these things backwards. The last one is a thing that makes you even care in the first place, uh, which I, I decided to call pizzazz. And that's the thing that you know when you see um, a book or you hear about a game, that's the first thing that makes you say, wow, I want to even take a look at the game. So if I were to go and actually talk about these things in the proper order that I should have done, if Brandon was here and uh, had told me, hey, let's uh, think about how we're going to do this podcast, I would have said uh, the following things. So today we're going to talk about three different reasons that three different games found an audience. And those three different things, I'm gonna write on these three three things are uh, the pizzazz, so the wow factor that makes you look at uh, the game in the first place. Then the kind of killer edge, the unique thing that makes people dive deeper and and spend more than just like be wowed and and tr- and. Uh, gets them over the hub to decide to try it or look into it. And the last thing is quality of life. So um, the thing that helps them actually get into the game and experience it and hopefully fall in love with it. So the first game I wanna talk about is, I think no surprise if you heard this podcast a lot, uh, it is going to be Frostgrave. And uh, if you've heard me talk about Frostgrave, you will know that this is my favorite game Uh, ever, I guess, because it's my current favorite game. So I guess uh, right now uh, it is my favorite game ever. And Frostgrave is a game where you play as a bunch of wizards who go to a frozen city and fight over the magical treasure and knowledge within. Um, So I think the first thing is with the pizzazz, the things that kind of gets you into the game uh, to even look at it. And it's, I think one of the things is kind of the theme is very evocative uh, in terms of just setting the scene, right? I was able to give you like a, a one sentence or, or, or two sentence description of the game and it's already, you know, gets a lot of people's brains uh, who are, uh, you know, moving, right? But the real thing I think that helped sell it was the art of the first uh, first edition. I think when Frostgrave came out, the art was really good. So the art was done by Dimitri Brumack and Kate Brumack, and it really kind of blew me away. And this is kind of the reason why I personally got in the game. It just, it was so evocative of the great kind of setting. The setting was very different. It was like a winter's world, which was at the time, I guess, not quite as uh, popular, but popular enough that it wasn't so out of people's wheelhouse, if you get what I mean. Like, it was different enough to pique people's interests and feel unique, but not different enough that it would scare people away. It's not like the world was set in Asia or something, <laughs> which, or, or sorry, China. I guess Japan is a little bit easier for Western audiences to take up, but so. Because of that, I think it really just kind of hooked a lot of people. And when you look at that book, there's so much art in that book. Like page after page, there's beautiful art of wizards dueling and casting spells. And when you think about fantasy, the wizard casting the spells is the most explosive, exciting kind of parts of you know high fantasy. So I think it really helped sell this kind of look for the game and really get people to take a look uh, deeper. Um, so that to me was kind of really the pizzazz and uh, I guess this uh, uh, the fact that the game is so good and picked up a lot of word of mouth definitely uh, came underneath and kind of brought it forward, right? Um, and also the fact that it was a campaign game uh, helped that, you know, where at, during a time when, when Frostgrave was released, campaign games had kind of fallen by the wayside really helped bring a whole bunch of different people into the game, especially people from D&D. And that, I think, was part of its killer edge. So the first thing that kind of hooked people, I think, was actually just the art, because especially Frostgrave is just... Uh, the book, right? It's a bunch of rule books. So that I made amaz- and, – and I'm not saying that you know, the new artist, I think it's a. Remar, um, is not as good. But at this point, Frostgrave is somewhat a known commodity, and so it doesn't have to fight as hard to get people to take a look and, and pick it up as it did when it first came out. So the next thing is then the killer edge, right? And like I said, the fact that this was such a thematic campaign game during a time when campaign games had kind of fallen by the wayside really, really helped have it blow up, right? Nowadays, there's a lot more campaign games, uh, but at the time, it was just very, very unique and different. And I think one of the things that still helps it is the mission design For frostgrave is so strong i don't know if whenever i tell people about why frostgrave is so good i think the mission design is such an important aspect of why every single game is so fun and so interesting right and i think that kind of adds to that it makes it different right the just the the the, that much focus on the the campaigns instead of all the focus on you know creating your coolest whatever your special snowflake army now the game also did have that because it has all the wizards and you have different spells and things like that but i think a lot of people who bounce off Frostgrave sometimes complain that there's not enough customization for the warband right um and i think possibly that ends up being okay in the long run just because you know, Frostgrave stakes a, you know, puts puts a what is what do you call it? Draws a line in the sand, and uh, Joseph McCullough, the person who created Frostgrave, decided to make the base game so much simpler by not having all these additional random rules for your initial characters that often make certain games so hard to get into because there's so many special rules just for your army instead the complication comes in the varied amount of different scenarios and that allows your initial gameplay to be a lot simpler but allows your actual gameplay over time to stay interesting and complicated as the as you play a different mission right so you understand the base gameplay and then every mission you you just have to learn a little bit of rules uh for that new mission you're playing and just that overall design i think has really helped get especially new players and players from let's say uh D or outside of the miniature gaming hobby space onto the table and actually playing Uh, And then the last thing is the quality of life. And I think I mentioned this a little bit, but um, the fact that the gameplay, the base gameplay is really streamlined, I think really helped uh, make Frostgrave very, very easy to pick up and get into. Because when you play an actual game, your initial rules are not super complicated. It's not like like there's just a base set of rules there's not like um when you when you uh, roll dice you only roll one dice and then calculate everything as opposed to rolling a whole bunch of different dice and trying to remember uh where you are in the dice chain of resolving an attack it can be very complicated especially if you're just getting in you're like okay so i roll a dice to hit then i roll a dice to damage then i roll a Cover save, and then I have all these other different kind of things. It often makes uh, games way more complicated than they need to be. And I think Frostgrave, in some ways, was one of the first of the new wave of of miniature sk- miniature games that. Really tried to streamline the experience, right? Tried to retain all of the coolness, the things that you we really liked about miniature gaming, the the cool decisions, the and especially with fantasy ones, making crazy spells to to really affect how the game is going, but then just stripping away a lot of the things that are not necessarily important, right? And um, so for Frostgrave, because it was wizards. The wizard spells are where all the complication is, and he didn't make the, um, you know, the the war band, the other members of the war band, which is just like soldiers and things like that. He kept those rules to a minimum to help keep the focus on these wizards, and I think it really helped helps the game be really clean and like designed in a way that um, is just easy to play, right? Uh, and easy to get into the into the rules and understand what's happening and so that has really uh, i think helped it gain you know quickly a following and get people into the game where a lot of the other games uh might people might bounce off of just because the complication of let's say learning how to play warhammer forty thousand right or uh, or another of my favorite games uh infinity which is super complicated right um and so those are, I guess, the three different things uh, for Frostgrave. Three different like analyses of how come I think it's done, uh, or or the strengths it has in these three different things. Um, and I guess just a, a a kind of to sum things up. Um, I do think in some ways Frostgrave was kind of a sleeper hit. I don't think if you looked at it right now. Um, there's not necessarily as many super out there, you know, unique mechanics, as people are, are saying, and there's it doesn't have a models range. So part of the thing that attracts people to games, uh, which is the miniatures, right, it doesn't have something as a flagship to really get you to get in the game, although I guess it kind of does because... There is the entire North Star Frostgrave miniatures. So actually maybe that's actually not necessarily true. I think uh, with those kind of miniatures, right, and the maybe that's kind of what has helped keep Frostgrave um, you know, in people's minds and uh, continues to kind of build this kind of uh, community. And so while the art, I think I said, and I guess the fact that it's a campaign game really gets you in. I do really think it's the general gameplay as you play it in the mission design where there's so much crazy stuff that happens in the game. It just really ends up being, all the things I've talked about before just helps you get into the game and then the game is what has helped build Frostgrave up as a pillar in the miniature gaming hobby. So the next game I wanted to talk about, Uh, is Infinity. So this is basically my second favorite game. So, Infinity. Um, The first thing I'll go into is the kind of pizzazz of Infinity, and I think that the, the thing that attracts a lot of people to Infinity is just the amount of polish in actually I think the miniatures. When you look at the miniatures of Infinity, it is one of the few games where I think they compete favorably to Games Workshop, right? So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of it is, um, what do you call it, a lot a lot of it is taste and everything like that. But I think it's undoubt, undoubtable that Infinity Designs and Infinity Sculpting is top tier. I personally think that it is, on average, better than Games Workshop models. I think just in general, the quality of the miniatures and the quality of the design is just higher now there's of course a thing in the fact that there's a lot less models coming out of infinity than there are for games workshop games but it still stands right like that doesn't stop the fact that in my opinion infinity models are just in general better sculpted i'm not saying they're not duds and i'm not saying that sometimes you know the best models of the year will be a games workshop model right but just consistently high quality sculpts, I think Infinity is there. And the other thing with it is that even though, of course, Games Workshop, Warhammer 40,000 is the big daddy in the room. Everyone looks at Warhammer 40,000 and says, oh, you know, this is the game that, you know, this is this is miniature gaming, right? The fact that <clears throat> Infinity models are at least comparable, in my opinion, better, uh, to Games Workshop models Um, and is also sci-fi makes it a clear alternative to Games Workshop. And that in and of itself is a huge high-level kind of um, selling point, right? Because if you like – if you want to get into – miniature gaming or you're already in miniature gaming and you've decided that the aesthetic of warhammer Forty is isn't for you you'll look around and you're like wow look at this other game this also has beautiful art and beautiful miniatures uh i'm gonna go give it a try it's a very different aesthetic as well right it's very different it's more clean future tech more you could uh, japanese sci-fi uh inspired uh, and so that to me is honestly the reason why I think Infinity is able to do so well. And, and you know, it's the miniatures, I guess, they're just beautiful. Um, and so after that, once you look at the miniatures, you see this kind of things, you also hear about the fact that this game is super ultra competitive Uh, and really balanced, relatively speaking, right? Like relatively speaking for a a game that has like 10 factions and then also split up into what, like 30 sectorials or 40 sectorials or something like that. um, The game is really deep and uh, really polished, surprisingly, right? Like I don't think the infinity, even when I get onto it at N3, but like the infinity of N2 to N4 the thing that is very interesting is that each edition is just a clear kind of polishing of the rules and making and it just makes the game better like there's a lot of rough edges that have been shade, shaved off and if you have the same game over 10 years just constantly being, being refined and polished your end result is going to be really can be I guess or ideally would be really really a really strong a really tight game and so Uh, I think that to me is one of the like the really great things or or, or the killer things about Infinity tied with the fact that it's what now like a 15 year old mechanic that is really really unique. This kind of a A row and order system where you can kind of push your luck where you have this. Like There's no other game that I feel like has that kind of cinematic movie sci-fi feel where one guy can go and Rambo and get into the back line and then kill a whole bunch of guys. This is very different in terms of gameplay. The way that the mechanics work make it so that you can have a, a very cinematic, impactful game like movies almost, right? That you wouldn't get in the traditional war game kind of way that is trying to simulate actual wars, right? Whereas Infinity, I'm pretty sure it was based on an RPG, so it's actually trying to to simulate action movies. <laughs> and so it just has a very different aesthetic and then over over those 15 years, that extra polish means that this game is like has an amazingly clean rule set for considering how deep and complicated it was and it didn't start off that way. Even when I we, I played it in N3, which was still very good, um, there were a lot more rough edges, right? And it just wasn't as good of a game, right? It's not like GW, where I feel like third, fifth maybe was a better version than at least sixth and seventh, even if you think eighth is better. Uh, but they still changed editions because they tried to, you know, just make more money or something like that. <laughs> Whereas Infinity, I really do feel like they really were just kind of trying to polish it and iterate and iterate. And I think that also shows with their models, right? They try to iterate and iterate and that's why I feel like Infinity has such a polish for their uh, products. Not because they start off super polished, but because they're dedicated to making things better every kind of day, every month, every release, right? Um, and I guess... I guess that's not really the thing when I think about Killer Edge. That, that's to me maybe the long run thing that makes you know, the game good. But the thing that attracts people when they see it is totally the cinematic experience and the way that when you play it, you kind of almost immediately feel that, that way, right? And of course, there's a lot of things that make you, can make you bounce off Infinity, but that to me is the thing that kind of hooks people, just the excitement and the ability to do those crazy things that you would not necessarily do in, in most other games. And then I guess the iteration thing is actually more about the quality of life. Now, Infinity is a super complicated game, in some ways, I'm surprised that how many people actually play Infinity, considering how complicated it is uh, and how complicated it seems at first. Actually, the game is not as complicated as it seems at first, but only because the game has been super polished over time. Right? There's a couple of things that I feel like are, are kind of crufty, like link teams. I feel like if the game was invented today, no, like brand new, knowing what they know now, they, link teams would not be the same thing they are now, right? But Overall, just this kind of relentless iteration has meant that their their library of tools, and their library and and their rule set has just been refined and cleaned up to be as simple as it can be while still offering offering that kind of exciting uh, gameplay that is core that has been core to the game for as long as I've played it. So that's or, or even known about it. So that is what the end of second edition to now, right? So. Uh, it has, like, an amazing army builder, right? I think it's probably the best army builder I've, I've used. Uh, it's got a mission tracker app now, right, which just kind of showed up, and now it's kind of, like, core when we when we play it. Uh, all of the rules are free, and it has an up-to-date wiki, which is amazing, honestly, uh, and makes the game so much easier to play. It's like, I know a lot of people talk about, what, Wahapedia for Warhammer 40,000 being, you know, needed to play. Well, Infinity has the wiki, has the similar thing as a wiki and has army building tools and everything, but it's all supported by the company. And that makes the game, even though the game is hard to get over, just the tools and the support that they put into it have made the game really as easy to get into as possible. Like they even invented a uh, Code One, which is a simplified version of Infinity, which is also actually still complicated. <laughs> uh for new people to get into i'm not sure how well code one did um but that at least shows you know they understand their game is complicated and they're trying to onboard people as easily as possible and so i guess the last word of infinity is um Overall, I think basically people get attracted by the minis, the polish, that kind of thing, and then they hear about, you know, the competitive, super deep gameplay. And that peaks like really, I guess, uh, veteran kind of gamers uh, to try the game. And then the fact that the gameplay is so polished and uh, so deep kind of helps people You know, fall in love with the game. And then the fact that there's so many tools to help keep the game uh, easy to play and not feel like a chore to set up uh, keeps people coming back for more. And so, honestly, like, I I do feel like Infinity is like the gamer's game for uh, sci fi and fantasy miniature gamers. Uh, And then now the. Last game I want to talk about is Warhammer 40,000. Now I think if you've listened to this podcast, I think you'll know I'm not that fond of the Warhammer 40,000 uh in general, but it's undeniable. This is like the biggest game. It's obviously doing a lot of stuff right. I did listen to a podcast recently here learning that Games Workshop was actually in trouble financially at a certain point. I think it was on the painting phase. Uh, and I was like, oh, I knew it, because the game wasn't doing very well for a while. But they've turned over a New Leaf, so they must be doing a lot of great things. And so for the same kind of thing, I think it's pretty obvious what the pizzazz is, right? It's the IP. It's the art and the world. It's all over the place. The art and the world is so fun and crazy. You know, it, it's now synonymous with Grimdark. You could say it probably birthed the modern view of Grimdark. And it's actually that world is so popular in not just the miniature gaming space, but also in the general video gaming space, which is much bigger space. Right. And so the fact that that IP can sell so many people in the video gaming world. Uh, and get people diving down so so deep into the game without even knowing it's a, a miniatures game or originally was a miniatures game at all uh, shows how strong that kind of pizzazz, that kind of attraction to Warhammer 40,000 is. It's like before people know that Warhammer 40,000 is a miniatures game, they're already primed to want to play it, right? or Or to want it because they just... Oh, they're like, oh yeah, Space Marines, I love that kind of thing it, The the look, the, everything is so cool, and I think uh, honestly, that is why, why Warhammer 40,000 continues to dominate, right? It's not the game I don't think it's even the miniatures It is definitely that the art the intellectual property, the IP all that kind of stuff, that evocative thing that hooks people and drags them in um, And so uh, after that once they've got hooked by the art, what is the killer edge that drags people in? I do think at that point that is when people look at you know the the miniatures and the general hobby, right? Um, what I, I really I think it really is the miniatures. And honestly, now that I think about it, the killer edge is still the the story and the IP. It's like people look at the miniatures and they're like, oh yeah, that's the things of the art and the stories that I thought were so cool. I want to build miniatures of those things. So to me, the killer edge is still the IP and the art, right? But the fact that they translate so well onto the miniatures and they emphasize the hobby so well. And of course the marketing machine and everything like that, right? But that I really do think that is the thing that helps drag people in the fact that this is like the biggest thing it's everywhere and you know the miniatures line up and you have the idea of assembling like orcs or the things that you were attracted to in other kind of spaces uh, or the big giant poster of a space when you're like oh i want a model of that i want to build an army of that right that's the thing that attracts people i don't even think I, people even care about the game honestly they don't really want to get into the game when they get into warhammer 40,000 they actually want to get into the universe the hobby right and so i don't even think the game has any killer edges it never it doesn't have to right the the world is the thing it's like when you assemble the mi- the miniatures you gain ownership over those kind of things and you feel like you're entering the world of warhammer 40000 and that's the killer edge and so the quality of life i i got to say like the biggest quality of life thing with warhammer 40000 is you can get it everywhere and so when people look at you know miniatures they want to get into this kind of hobby in general oftentimes they just think there's only a Warhammer 40,000 hobby, right? That's the only thing there is. So when they do that, you know, the first thing, if if they look anywhere, if you can get any miniatures, it's going to be Warhammer 40,000. And because it's not the actual game that you're necessarily getting to, but the hobby, the fact that it is, you know, you can get into the hobby, buy these miniatures, find them everywhere is actually makes it really easy to participate in what you're actually looking for. And so, for me, I know I haven't talked to anything about the game, basically. <laughs> Besides that, I don't really think it's that great. But I think that's actually kind of true about why Warhammer 40,000 is so popular and why it has succeeded so well. Of course, the fact that it's the first miniature game has expand, expanded so much and has a great marketing team, that definitely really helps. But the backbone of that, right, of why Warhammer 40,000 is succeeding... Uh, Where let's say Warhammer Fantasy Didn't do as much although it's coming back Or uh, some of these smaller IPs didn't take off And overtake Warhammer 40,000 Is because of the Depth of the world and the story And the attraction that has And the attraction of that art right? That art has For people who are trying to get into The hobby Because Warhammer 40,000 is not a miniature game It's a hobby Uh, And yeah I think that that is what has helped it uh succeed and it works on me like i don't really want to play the game but i kind of want to buy codexes just because they're so pretty they're so good looking they're like art books right um so i do still kind of want to participate even though i'm not that into the Imperium side of of uh, the storylines. I do want to sometimes participate in the Warhammer hobby, even though I'm not that into the game, and that's kind of a testament to why Warhammer Three Thousand continues to be by far the biggest player in the miniatures wargaming space. Uh, so that all said, um, you know, I did analyze a bunch of other other games, but uh, just to wrap it up, because you know, it's getting a little bit late. It's a little bit harder to talk by yourself than when you have a friend to kind of uh, fill out the podcast with. Um, I want to come back to our game, uh, Blood of Stars. And so when I think about this, I think we've concentrated a lot about, you know, building the game that we want to play, right? It's, It's a very simplified game. We want the rules to be boiled down. We want it to be easy to pick up. And one of the things that I always thought about is, you know, make it easy for my um, my nephews uh, to get into the game, make it and pick up, right? Um, I ended up buying my nephew Battletech Alpha Strike and I would go into that but you know I've already said I've already done the three games so I can't go on but uh, for um, our game that's the kind of North Star we had, right? We wanted a simple game to make it easy to play, but of course, because we're veteran gamers, we want there to be enough interesting things to keep things uh, exciting, right? For every single role that there's not these wasted roles that that every single move is interesting uh, and moves the game forward. But we also want the game to be e- just as simple as possible to get onto the table, right? Um, but that is... Besides, you know, making the game that we wanted for us, I think we do need to look better at you know as we as we try to push this game out further. How are we going to talk about you know what is the pizzazz? Like, I, I think there is a lot of things that are cool and, and and interesting with the way that we've built out this game, right? We we've written a a, a backstory. We have some art. Now we. Um, Right, and how are we going to sell this in a way that you know attracts people just by looking at it? Right now, we don't have the amount of resources to make you know the the quality of, of art that you know that's a Warhammer 40, or forty thousand or even you know smaller companies like Infinity could could create. But but that doesn't mean that we can't create striking and interesting uh, pieces, right? As long as you choose things in the right way, um, and then you know. Although we have created this game in a way that we think is ideal for, for like I said, our North Star, um, which is in many ways just keeping the game, you know, very easy to play. Uh, what do we pick out, right, to say that those are the killer edges? What, what are the things that, you know, when someone is playing the game, what are the things that that will stand out to them and say, oh, well, that's different, that's interesting, right? Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, all games need a lot of those. But I think, especially these days, considering, you know, there's somewhat of a, a, a smaller kind of games, uh, miniatures gaming, kind of a, a, a renaissance because it's now so easy to, to publish games. You do need something to keep, to, to make your game stick out, right? Even if it's just like super polished or whatever, like Infinity, like we said, so or like I said, sorry, is so polished, but it has so many unique mechanics, right? And so those kind of things that differentiate your game from other things. And I think we do need to go back and, and emphasize that. And we do have some interesting things, especially like we have a, a flag mechanic for, uh, for where your army is focusing and things like that. Um, but definitely uh, as we go on, we need to pick those out uh, and be able to describe them better, right? Um, and yeah, so I think it's just interesting, you know, from analyzing all these different games and seeing how we can apply that to our game uh, going forward. So there's um, a lot of learning that we can do for Blood of Stars from looking at these other games to see how we can push this game out. And so I hope that was... A little bit interesting uh, as, as a view of how these other games or how we view um, or I keep on saying we because I'm used to Brandon being here but how I view these different games so what is interesting to them and possible lessons that we could learn uh, for improving our ability to uh, push out our, our game and not just that, but to analyze other games and wonder—I guess one of the things as a uh, someone in the miniature gaming hobby is to look at other games and wonder if they're going to succeed, and also kind of wonder why certain games that you might like uh, have kind of floundered and failed. Like even if your game is super polished, if it doesn't—if it doesn't, let's say your game is like the best version of another game. If that other game is more popular and you you can't differentiate it and your game is just a polished version of the other game are you going to be able to convince people to transfer over to your game like is that polish enough and so I think it's helpful looking at all these different games to see why those you know certain games might not hit as well as others And yeah, so that's basically it. I guess it's a long way to say, uh, we've started uh, looking into the marketing of miniature games now that we're trying to uh, do the same thing for our game. Uh, And honestly, it's very interesting and also very complicated. Uh, Yeah, I kind of respect marketing a lot more than I used to. Uh, And I used to respect it quite a bit, but it's just like, I didn't realize how how much more complicated and outside of my wheelhouse that it was, right? So that has basically been it. Uh, our description, or sorry, my description of three different games and three uh, three different reasons why they have really succeeded. So, if you have any questions or any thoughts on you know three different games I mentioned, other games about why you think they succeeded, didn't succeed, um, how well they kind of. Uh, track on these three different things and uh, any other questions for any other things you can uh, email us at contact at dice over everything this has been Alan bye